0: Hey there faithful podcast listeners. It's Matt coming to you unscripted, unplugged, mostly, with another one of our little secret podcast listener messages, just for you guys. We haven't done this in a while, but we have a very good reason to uh, make a special appeal to you now, and I when I say appeal, that's exactly what I mean. I don't have to tell you that times are tough all over, and they're especially tough for nonprofits. And that's what the Planetary Society is. But uh, the Society does need to look for ways to save money. And one of the things being looked at very seriously is this podcast. So we've decided that it was time to ask for your help. If it's not there yet, in a day or so, you'll be able to find at planetary.org slash radio a special new link that will allow you to make a donation directly to Planetary Radio without having to become a member of the Planetary Society. Now, of course, we'd love for you to become a member of the Planetary Society, but this link will allow you to uh, make a donation that uh, will help keep this show on the net and, for that matter, on the air for our radio listeners, and we'll be talking to them, too. You can make a donation in any amount, but anything over $50 U.S. will uh, get you a Planetary Radio T-shirt. You won't even have to answer a trivia question. Anyway, we hope you can help us out. We'd like nothing better than to uh, keep bringing you the most exciting news and people who make the news in uh, space science, planetary science, and really news from all over the universe. We love you folks, and uh, we hope we'll be able to keep doing this for a long, long time. Once again, that uh, donation link should be at planetary.org slash radio. Thanks very much. Here's the show. Stern's Biggest Planetary Science Questions, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. We've learned so much about our universe, but so many unanswered questions remain. And it's these questions that drive science forward. Planetary scientist Alan Stern will share some of his favorite mysteries on today's show. We'll also catch Bruce Betts in Manassas, Virginia, where he was helping to prepare the life experiment for a round trip to Mars' moon Phobos. As always, Bruce knows where to look in the night sky for our planetary neighbors, and he knows the answer to our space trivia contest. Or does he? And just because we miss her, stay tuned for Emily Lakdawalla. Emily will be on maternity leave for another month or so, but I found a classic edition of her Q&A segment that is more relevant than ever as Saturn fast approaches its equinox. NASA has targeted June 13 for the next space shuttle launch. It's Endeavor's turn to visit the International Space Station for completion of the Japanese lab called Kaibo. It will take five spacewalks and 16 days. We also want to mark the recent launch of Herschel and Planck. These European Space Agency spacecraft went up on the same Ariane 5 booster last month, but with very different missions. Herschel will use the biggest mirror ever put in space to help us learn about the formation of stars and planets, while Planck will look back to just 400,000 years after the Big Bang. There's more news at Planetary.org, but let's turn now to Bill Nye. We caught Bill on the road returning from a meeting of the Federation. No, not that Federation, but close. The Federation of Galaxy Explorers was created to inspire and educate kids about space science and engineering. Bill helped host their galactic ball on June 6th. Our only chance to hear from the science and planetary guy came as he ran from one plane to another at the Denver, Colorado airport. So when he says he's got to fly, you know he means it. I'll be right back with Alan Stern.
1: Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the planetary guy here. I was in Washington, D.C. this weekend for the Federation of Galaxy Explorers banquet. And uh, Miles O'Brien, the CNN reporter, was given an award for his contribution to the communication of space. But the exciting thing was all the young people, all the young people who were getting involved in rockets and space exploration. Now, I admit, there are a lot of military people who are kind of a throwback really want the United States to go back to the moon because other countries are going to go there. But as you may know, my feeling is no hurry to go back to the moon to the United States. We've been there 40 years ago. But nevertheless, the young people are excited, they're exploring space, not at the same level as the Cold War, not as many people are involved, but the people who are involved are as passionate as ever. And here's hoping that with your support as members of the Planetary Society, we can continue to explore the nearby planets continue to explore the Lagrange points. There was a lot of talk about that. These are points where the gravity is balanced, so you can put a spacecraft out there without using as much rocket fuel as you might use to go to other places. we can continue to explore the nearby solar system, as well as distant stars with telescopes in space. We can. Dare I say it changed the world. And seeing the Federation of Galaxy Explorers, as they're whimsically called, was really heartening. Well, thanks for listening. i get got to fly Bill Knight, the Planetary Guy.
0: Even though he's no longer an associate administrator at NASA, Alan Stern remains one of the busiest planetary scientists around. Time Magazine named him as one of our planet's 100 most influential people not long ago. He may be best known at the moment as the principal investigator for the New Horizons mission to Pluto and beyond. New Horizons will reach Pluto and Charon in July of 2015. We've talked with him several times about that journey, and we'll get another update in a moment. But what really made me want to talk to Alan again was a recent entry he penned for the Planetary Society blog. He called it, Ten Things I Wish We Really Knew in Planetary Science. It was just one of his contributions as the Society offers special guest bloggers a chance to fill in for Emily Lakdawalla during her maternity leave. We've got a link at planetary.org slash radio. Alan is also an associate vice president at the Southwest Research Institute, and that's where we caught him a few days ago. Alan, it's been too long. Welcome back to Planetary Radio.
2: Thanks, Matt. It's good to be back.
0: You know, we're going to talk about these uh, questions that you've uh, posed not only for others but uh, for yourself, the 10 things you wish you and we really knew in planetary science. Uh, we're not going to be able to get to all 10, or actually 11 of them, I know you've picked out five, we're going to start that in a second, but I'm sure that folks would also like to hear, what's the status of that uh, little spacecraft that's headed out to the outer reaches of the solar system?
2: (laughs) Well, uh, New Horizons, a little spacecraft that could, is barreling its way in the depths of space between Saturn and Uranus, just past 13.5 astronomical units from the Sun, in very good health as it hibernates. We'll be waking it up uh, next month at the start of July for a couple of months of uh, checkouts and updates, and then uh, we'll put it back to bed as we uh, keep flying it farther and farther.
0: Six years to go.
2: Six
1: years to go.
0: Very exciting. I couldn't help wanting to mention this little fascinating segment that I found on your website, and we'll put a link up to the site, of course, about Venetia Bernie Fair, who passed away at the age of 90 just last month, uh, actually in April, April 30th. Uh, in England. What was the significance? Why, why did she end up on the site?
1: Well, uh,
2: Venetia essentially named Pluto in 1930. When she was 11 years old, she suggested the name Pluto as a student. And of course, that was the name that was ultimately uh, adopted for the ninth planet. You know, she has a little bit of astronomical history to her credit.
0: You got to meet her, I, I'm told.
2: That's right. You know, um, after we launched, because we're flying the first student-built instrument on a planetary mission, we decided to honor her by renaming the instrument from simply technical name, the student dust counter, to the Venetia Burney student dust counter. On a trip I was making for other reasons, I joined up with uh, Mihai Hirani of the University of Colorado, who's our instrument PI for the student dust counter. And we, we spent a day uh, with Venetia and her son, You know, made a formal dedication, had a little ceremony and so forth. And she was just an absolutely bright and delightful lady, even at uh, 87 years old. And it was just a pleasure getting to know her.
0: What did she have to say about your mission?
2: She was amazed that uh, after all these years that we were picking up where Voyager had uh, left off with unfinished business and going on to reconnoiter the Kuiper Belt, and in particular its most famous member, Pluto,
0: well, it's a wonderful little, uh, little feature, and thank you for marking her passing. Hey, we better get on to these uh, five questions that you've selected out of the larger group, because it's still going to be a, a whirlwind tour. And uh, let's start with this one, uh, which I'd say deserves uh, the number one spot. How many worlds harbor life in our own solar system?
2: Isn't that something that everybody wants to know? Conventional wisdom used to be that uh, most of the worlds after the initial reconnaissance looked uh, not not very likely as a potential abodes for life, but I think that um, uh, the ball has moved quite a ways downfield on that, and now we're beginning to see evidence of uh, energy sources, liquid water, even uh, carbon-bearing compounds, organic chemistry, in a whole variety of places across the solar system, from uh, the potential for oceans inside Europa to uh, uh, the organics on Titan, oceans on, uh, inside many of the satellites, of course, Mars. I think the most interesting thing about this question, and we may not know the answer for a long time, but the most interesting thing is, is that if I had to place a bet, my bet would be that we're likely to find more worlds harboring life in the outer solar system than in the terrestrial planet region when it's all said and done. Mm. But I might be wrong. We'll just have to go and see.
0: Yeah, let's go and see as soon as we can, okay? Uh, Here's number two. How common are solar systems with architectures like ours, i.e., rocky planets on the inside, giant planets in the middle zone, and dwarf planets, so-called, and comet reservoirs, lots and lots of them, on the outside?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, that's the description of our solar system, and we have yet to find an analog to it. Uh, All the ones that are being discovered around other stars are very different. We find pulsar planets, or we find uh, Jupiters in very tight orbits inside, even uh, where Mercury would lie, for example. Now, that doesn't mean that our solar system is a rare architecture, but the techniques that we now have to look for planets bias the kinds of things we can find. When we have better techniques, we'll be able to find a greater variety. And I just wonder if, um, if ours is typical, or if ours is really the odd bird, it's a question that it keeps me awake some nights.
0: I guess this is, has, though, shaken the faith of some folks who thought that uh, we were, you know, the model for the galaxy, if not the universe. Uh, so far, not so much.
2: You're right. It's another part. It may be another part of the Copernican Revolution. Just as the Earth was displaced as the center of the universe, and the sun is nowhere near the center of our galaxy, uh, it may turn out even that our solar system is uh, quite the minority type. We'll
0: see. And I'm delighted every time that happens. Stay with us for more Big Planetary Science Questions from Alan Stern. This is Planetary Radio.
3: Hey, hey, Bill Nye the Science Guy here. I hope you're enjoying Planetary Radio. We put a lot of work into this show and all our other great Planetary Society projects. I've been a member since the disco era. Now I'm the Society's Vice President. And you may well ask, why do we go to all this trouble? Simple. We believe in the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy of space exploration. You probably do, too, or you wouldn't be listening. Of course, you can do more than just listen. You can become part of the action, helping us fly solar sails, discover new planets, and search for extraterrestrial intelligence and life elsewhere in the universe. Here's how to find out
4: more.
0: Alan Stern is in the middle of sharing with us some of his greatest planetary science mysteries. Alan is an associate vice president at the Southwest Research Institute, principal investigator for the New Horizons mission to Pluto and the Kuiper Belt, and is deeply involved with more missions, universities, and aerospace firms than we have time to mention. He also helped run NASA as an associate administrator in 2007 and 2008. So far, we've heard two of his big questions. Let's go on to number three. What causes Triton's surface to be so young, so long after that dwarf planet's internal engine should have run down?
2: You know, one of the biggest mysteries from my perspective in planetary science is, is the uh, the activity of Triton, which is a small world, 2,700 kilometers and yet its uh, surface is so young that it's essentially indistinguishable from zero in terms of surface age. And when Voyager 2 went there, saw ongoing activity in the form of geysers and resurfaced terrains where there are no craters. And we don't understand why a world that small should be able to run for four or five billion years. Now, uh, an interesting possibility has come up recently, suggested by uh, Doug Hamilton and Craig Agenor, it may be that uh, we know Triton was captured from solar orbit. It was formerly a planet in and of itself. What Agenor and Hamilton suggested is that the capture mechanism was that Triton was a binary planet, like Pluto, and that the other member was slung out of the system, and uh, Triton was the one that lost energy and was captured into orbit. If that happened recently, then the subsequent thermal evolution may still be going on as Triton breaks uh, through tidal interactions and we may be seeing activity simply because of um, a recent capture but it might be that we don't understand the physics of uh, small planets and I think either is exciting and either has a lot to teach us about the the history of our solar system and how things work.
0: Fascinating. Here's another one, number four. How many planets are hiding in the deep outer solar system, beyond your fave, Pluto.
2: Well, there are strong lines of circumstantial evidence now that that the Kuiper Belt and Oort Cloud may contain hundreds, perhaps even a thousand dwarf planets like Pluto, and potentially a collection of um, other worlds that were formed in the middle uh, zone of the solar system but ejected by the giant planets, Mars-sized, Earth-sized, potentially even giant planet core-sized worlds may be lurking in the Oort cloud, which I like to call the solar system's attic. And someday <laughs> we'll have that census. And I suspect that we'll, we'll end up finding that almost all the planets in our solar system are way out there in the frozen deep and only a select few were lucky enough to be in the warmth of the Sun.
0: How much hope do you have that your spacecraft, New Horizons, might uh, show us a few of these?
2: Well, we're not um, we're not built to look for new places. Uh, we don't really have the radio communication system, or the, the onboard telescopes to do that. We're really built for visiting places up close and reconnoitering them. Of course, we'll visit the whole the Pluto system and all of its moons, and then go on to one or two Kuiper Belt objects beyond.
0: Okay, here is number five, and I think it's one that uh, you have a, a lot of personal experience with. Uh, if I remember correctly, you've looked for these guys. Are there volcanoid asteroids orbiting close to the sun inside Mercury's orbit or not?
2: You know, I really want to know the answer to this. Every dynamically stable niche in the solar system is occupied by objects. Every place we can show the orbits are stable, we find either the debris of planet formation or planets themselves. And when you look at Mercury, you see all those craters, you know that many of those projectiles used to be orbiting close to the sun. The question is, are there any orbiting close to the sun today other than Mercury? And if so, the prize is pretty great because it might be a sample of the material out of which uh, the innermost planets were made. An original sample that's not been uh, processed by planetary geology and so forth. It's very hard to look for these volcanoids, but a number of teams are trying, and I expect that before the next decade is out, we'll have a final answer.
0: Alan, you've done so well. Can I throw you, give you 30 seconds to answer another one that deserves uh, at least 10 times that?
2: Sure, we'll try.
0: Here you go. How many times did life originate on Earth? It sounds like not just punctuated evolution, but punctuated creation.
2: Well, Matt, you know, if, um, if life was easy to make on the Earth and the Earth was undergoing heavy bombardment, as we know it did in the early days, then uh, life may have been wiped out and had to restart several times. Or it may have been that life was tough to start and only occurred this once. We don't know, but um, it sure is an important question, I think, uh, about the history of of life on Earth and our understanding of life in the universe. So um, I'd like to have the answer to that.
0: Can you imagine ever losing your excitement over questions like this?
2: No, planetary science is um, just the best, isn't it? Uh, Big questions and uh, high technology. Who could ask for a better combination to go off sleuthing the universe?
0: And who could ask for a better uh, opportunity than uh, than we have with uh, shows like this to be able to talk to folks like you who are asking and sometimes getting answers for those questions. Alan, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the chance to talk again. Thanks, Matt. Alan Stern is an associate vice president at the Southwest Research Institute, consultant all over the place, and as you've heard, the principal investigator for the New Horizons mission, which is uh, now headed to Pluto, about six years uh, to go before its closest path to that planet out there on the edge of the solar system, or maybe not quite the edge of the solar system. He is, of course, a planetary scientist. He's also the former associate administrator, one of the uh, associate administrators at NASA. And, uh, Alan, we're going to put up links both to your uh, blog entry where people can see the rest of the questions that you have about our solar system and also to uh, your information at the SWRI site uh, where they can see the uh, smiling photo of you in an Aloha shirt. And let me just say I, I, I like you a lot better in this than I did in the suit.
2: Thanks, Ryan. I do, too.
0: Alan Stern has been our guest, and uh, Bruce Betts will be our guest, as he is every week, when Planetary Radio continues with What's Up, in just a moment.
4: Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, Which would give Cassini a better view of Saturn's equinox, an orbit in the plane of the rings, or one out-of-the-ring plane? When the science team wants Cassini to focus on the icy moons in orbit around Saturn, it's best to have Cassini orbit in the same plane as the moons and rings, because that increases the chance of moon flybys. But for most of the other scientific disciplines, it's best to have Cassini flying above and below the ring plane in an inclined orbit. Cassini arrived at Saturn during late summer in the southern hemisphere, so since the mission started, the Sun has illuminated the south poles of Saturn and its moons and the southern face of Saturn's rings. The equinox arrives in August 2009. The coming of spring to a planetary hemisphere always brings big changes, but the changes should be even more dramatic on Saturn's rings because the entire ring plane sees only one sunrise and one sunset every year. The greatest drama should happen in the most opaque ring. The blocks of rock and ice that make up the densest B ring are so tightly packed that they don't travel from the day side of the rings to the night side of the rings as they orbit Saturn. That means that the day side of the rings is nearly 100 degrees Celsius warmer than the night side. When the sun rises on the north side of the rings, we'll see all of that change, and it could have surprising effects. When the equinox comes, Cassini will be near its closest approach to Saturn and on the south side of the rings, watching the sun set. Just hours after the equinox, Cassini will pass to the north side and be able to watch the sun rise over the north side of Saturn's rings for the first time in 15 years. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio.
0: We do have Bruce Betts on the Skype connection, and uh, he is reporting in, well, where are you and why? I am in Manassas, Virginia. Just because you're a Civil War buff or what?
3: (laughs) No, but I'm getting there. Yes, they enjoyed it so much in the Civil War, they didn't just have one battle here, they had two. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But, uh, But that is not why I am here. I am here because this is where ATCC is located the American Type Culture Collection, who we are partnering with on our Phobos Life project. I've been working with them in the final loading of organisms for our Phobos Life project that we will be uh, delivering soon for launch on board the Phobos Grunt spacecraft, which will be launching to Phobos and then coming back, returning our samples three years later and uh, scheduled to launch this October.
0: Pretty exciting mission all by itself—sample return from Phobos. But uh, even more so with this little uh, canister of critters that you've been carrying around.
3: It's true, the little canister of critters. It'll be the the first time we're testing whether life can survive out in uh, interplanetary space uh, for multi-year periods, uh, returning it back to back to Earth. We're excited, and it's been great. The ATCC group are so very competent and professional, and uh, it's been a wonderful experience. They have like a, a drive-through window for critters, or what? Uh, they do, but you can also uh, you can also <laughs> mail order them. <laughs> <laughs> they are the place uh, in in the U.S. to. Uh, uh, store your bugs, if uh, your your organisms, if your microorganisms, if you've done studies on them, and you you send strains to them, they store them. Someone else wants to play with them, either in their lab or their high school science class. They're the the place to go. But they also have some, uh, not surprisingly, very competent biologists on staff and are experts at storing microorganisms, which is exactly what we wanted.
0: Are they excited about this thing?
3: They are. They're they're probably tired of having. Us around for a few days, but <laughs> other than that, I, I think they're excited that a we're leaving and b that the experiment is uh, cool and something something different and that their organisms get to go to space.
0: Tell us about what's up in space right now. Tell us about the night
3: sky. All right, we've got uh, in the pre-dawn sky over there in the east, spectacular Venus it's snuggling up pretty darn close to it these days. Reddish, much dimmer Mars, then to its. Uh, Far upper right over in the, the southeast in the pre-dawn, you'll see also extremely bright Jupiter in the evening sky. Over in the west in the evening, we've got Saturn up in Leo looking kind of yellowish and like a bright star.
0: And I think you've got my year in space calendar because I left it at the Planetary Society. I don't imagine you have your copy along.
3: No, I uh, I stole your copy, and uh, it it almost made the final cut to come with me to Virginia by <laughs> no
0: darn those weight limitations
3: <clears throat> no this this week in space uh there was uh work done on packing up uh organisms for the phobos life module in 2009
0: all right so back next week with that uh that little piece of that little feature within what's up do we then go on to
3: we do we go on to random space fact but you know what I, i'm I'm using my elective once every six or seven years, yes, I transform this into random bio fact <laughs> critters and Just, bugs know, in an space yeah. biologists and and they've been telling me all sorts of creepy things. There are at least ten times as many bacteria cells as human cells in the body. Are you joking?
0: ten times uh, as many bacteria right now
3: inside me, yeah. Yeah, in or on you. <laughs> you know, most of them in your gut, but you know, all over you. It's a it's a party. And They're mostly much smaller apparently than the human cells, so they they don't outweigh us, but they do outnumber us. I am going to
0: fire my immune system. <laughs>
3: well, <laughs> as people will point out, some of them are actually beneficial, and most of them are just hangers-on that like like a nice warm place to hang out.
0: All right. Well, they're tough little little critters, I guess, and uh, you know we'll see if some of those can uh, can make it to Mars and back, or at least Phobos.
3: <laughs> mostly sending critters that don't hang out inside us. Seeds. We got water bears. We got animals. You... But mostly we have back, we have representatives of all three domains of life: the uh, bacteria, archaea, and eukaryota.
0: Yes, and the the eukaryota. That's uh, that's our family.
3: That's us. <laughs> That's us. That's our domain. Anywho, anyway, let us go on to the trivia contest. I shook things up by asking you, uh, who is the second oldest person to fly in space? John Glenn having been the oldest person to fly in space. How would we do, Matt?
0: Well, first of all, I beg to differ about uh, John Glenn. Well, I guess you did put that uh, small qualifier on it of person, you might have even been human, but we did get from uh, Ivan uh, Winther, Yoda, who was 877 years old. Uh, slightly uh, beating out, John Glenn, actually. <laughs> just Slightly. Yeah. yeah. But, but your question was, who was second, right? And, yes, who was second to John Glenn, not counting Yoda. And we got a surprise, because neither of us figured this out. But several listeners, and there was a lot of disagreement about this, but several listeners figured it out. It was not anybody on a space shuttle or on a Soyuz or any other way to get the International Space Station. It was Mike Melville, the pilot of Spaceship One. He was 64 years old, or 63 or 62, depending on who you talk to, followed by Story Musgrave, who was either 61 or 60. Or
3: 62.
0: Or 62.
3: What (laughs) does this tell us?
0: That astronauts lie about their age.
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, really, that's the conclusion I was going for with this question.
0: <laughs> well, for this answer, we're going to uh, get a T-shirt out to Eric Bruner, who I thought had won before, but I think he is a first-time winner in Cary, North Carolina. Send him out the T-shirt and an Oceanside Photo and Telescope rewards card. Congratulations, Eric.
3: Nice job. I think we'll give something a little, little easier and less uh, insightful this time around, but equally as fascinating What are the two brightest stars in the constellation Orion? Two brightest stars, constellation Orion. Go to planetary.org slash radio. Find out how to enter.
0: And just in case you're wondering, you have until June 15, Monday, June 15 at 2 p.m. to get us that answer.
3: Have a good trip home. Thank you. All right, everybody. Go out there. Look up the night sky and think about bad artwork in hotel rooms. Thank you and good night. (laughs)
0: You want to be a little bit more descriptive of that masterpiece hanging over your
3: bed? <laughs> Something involving an urn? <laughs> I think. All right. Maybe a column? Are those skulls? No, no. Gosh, maybe not.
0: He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. He joins us every week here or there for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Have a great week.